Welcome everyone. Thank you so much for coming down this evening for what is an utmost titanic double bill of talent before us. I'm sure you'll all agree. Uh, now, before we go any further, I'd just like to uh, acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land that we're gathered on. And as we share in these dialogues of uh, culture, knowledge and wisdom, may we pay respect to the elders and their own uh, dialogues, past, present and future. So I won't go on too long because I'm sure you're all eager to uh, hear these two guys speak. Men of many talents from stage to screen to stand up and to writing. So I'm sure as all of you are aware with a new book, this marks a uh, fairly astounding achievement. This is the 16th novel that Ben Elton has written. So I'm sure that warrants applause in its own right. And our facilitator and host tonight is uh, the one Sean McAuliffe. And both of these guys, I'm sure you will agree, will fill out a respective Mount Rushmore of, of comedy. So uh, without further ado, please make them feel very welcome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Atticus. Thank you. Thank you very much, Atticus. Uh, I, I much, ben, I don't know about you, but I much prefer the Mount Rushmore image than the Titanic image, which I, Atticus yes, mentioned at the very beginning. of comedy. I, I felt like we were getting married, actually. We? <laughs> which is a very lovely thing. It would be legal, which would be splendid. It I would, think yeah. We should... And we're in good company. We're in a church. Good to have that yeah. marriage recognised in a church, I'm a bit concerned about these six empty seats at the front. I think they might be for my guests. If That's they your are, family? I hope yeah. they're not going to sit there. So if anybody wants a good seat at the front, just go and sit on those. Okay. <laughs> As quick, yes, you oh, can. There you go. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. Ben, you're quite happy to, to write the family off. So. Yeah. They're gone. They're all gone now. Oh, sorry. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, After the lonely um, walk back, I'm afraid. So uh, if my if my people just they can squeeze in elsewhere. So, so uh, Ben, yeah. if your family do turn up, yeah, they'll have to stand at the back. All right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, I haven't introduced you yet, so you, you don't exist. They don't know who you are. Um, I should, I want to mention, when I was in my early 20s, I had the good fortune of going over to a friend's place who said to me, you must watch this, you must watch this. And uh, he put on a tape and it was uh, of the young ones and I was just blown away by it. And uh, uh, whereas Python I'd always liked and it was very subversive, this seemed very transgressive. And I had the very good fortune to meet the co-writer of that series a few years later when I was... Uh, hosting a show on uh, on Channel Nine, and uh, and this gentleman was lovely enough to laugh at one of my jokes, and I just I I, I still have a warm feeling uh, from that laugh. Ben, you'll be oh. pleased to know. Well, that's a... um, and now, anyway, you know who he is. He's written a book. Please, please welcome Ben Elton. Thank you. Uh, Ben, now before I talk to Ben Elton, the novelist, mm -hmm. I would like to talk about Ben Elton, the comedy icon. Wow, that's uh, my favourite, Ben, <laughs> definitely. Uh, yeah. does, it, does, does your body of work thus far cast a bit of a shadow over your work that you do now? Do you, do you, do you, are you conscious of the fact that you've actually done some pretty interesting and important things in the world of comedy? Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't dwell on it. I, 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 of course, it, it would be ridiculous and uh, at the height of humble bragging to deny that some of the stuff I've been fortunate enough to, to, to be involved with has has become incredibly memorable. I mean, there, there's no doubt about that, and it's a wonderful thing. You don't get many opportunities in life to really contribute to the culture 
And certainly with early work, like the young ones in the Blackadder, that really some of that stuff really entered the language, the mm. comic way of talking, etc. Um, and so that's something. And it's loved too, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is lovely. People say, oh, do you get sick of people, you know, talking about the Adder or whatever? Of course not. It would be utterly churlish to do so. But it doesn't, I don't feel burdened by it. I always, as far as I'm concerned, the next piece of work's the most important piece of work. Tomorrow's, you know, I, I, every day's my 21st birthday. I've got it all to do. I don't look back. I don't dwell on my previous uh, things. Um, I don't watch them. It's not out of some kind of either fear or arrogance. It's just of less interest to me perhaps than to other people, particularly since, of course, I only see the problems, I only see the things that annoyed right. me at the time. It all comes back. You can remember every word and, 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 and every, oh, you know, and we never did fix that. Uh, so if I'm on a plane and they're, they're playing adders or young ones or, or, or quite, you know, thin blue lines or whatever. So no, I, I'm, I'm not remotely burdened by, uh, by the, yes, the success I've had, uh, and I'm not burdened by those things that haven't worked either. I really, I'm not, a, I'm not a very reflective person, frankly. I, <laughs> I, I, I certainly don't consider myself uh, particularly. I'm not an internalising sort of person, and I, I'm, I'm always looking to the future. The, the next piece of work is the first piece of work. Because you've so. not written a memoir yet, have you? No, I haven't. I mean, Stephen, I think he's on his eighth. I think, I think the first, <laughs> the first, first volume only didn't get him out of short trousers, as far as I can remember. And I think, gosh, there's money in this. But after that, old media collapsed, and there isn't any more. So, um, I know I haven't done it memoir I've thought about it um, I've, I quite like to write about the times I've lived through I mean certainly the first years that I was uh, an adult finding my way in the world and also really having a remarkable early success uh, in Britain was very divided and divisive times and um, I think it would be quite interesting to write about those. the first gig I ever did uh, terrifying experience going to the London Comedy Store in January, February 1981. Um, as I emerged on the escalator into the, the, the into Leicester Square tube station and just up onto the uh, into London, you could smell Brixton in flames. Literally, the, the the flames of the Brixton riots, and it was like the 80s kicked off. Almost the, my first gig because those were the first red Brixton Toxter St Paul's youth riots, race riots, effectively. Um, uh, not racist riots. This was right. this was the this was a howl of anger and agony from people who had definitely were marginalised, which was, which was the largely black urban areas. Um, then, of course, before we knew it, we had the dismantling of trade unionism, the war between the miners and the police. The British police force effectively politicised as an army of the government against the trade union movement, and by the end of the decade, we had the poll tax. And I started it all with that gig. Yeah. At the, uh, <laughs> so I'd quite like to write about kind of that as well. I've always yeah. loved history, so maybe I, I'd do a memoir that was my life and times. I think I think the I think the best autobiographies and memoirs are the ones that paint a, an mm. evocative picture of the yeah. of the person. First, first shags you can do in a paragraph, sure. you know, but riots need a chapter, you know. Well, you knew you knew. Well, in fact, you were a professional writer very young. Mm. Um, probably, am I right in saying before you were a performer? Uh, yeah, very much so. I only became a performer because I'm a writer. I became a performer by, uh, as a very practical and, as it turned out, extremely uh, important decision in my life, which has shaped so much of what I am. I, I wanted to be a writer. I, I, a, a very brief period of wanting to be an actor when I was I, my my 
my, my life was set, <laughs> my road to Damascus, my epiphany moment was Onslow Village Hall in 1969 when I auditioned for the, uh, the Curtain Raisers amateur drama production of, um, of Peter Pan. And I was given uh, the role of uh, Slightly Soiled. And I, I oh, caught the bug. They're one of the lost boys. And I caught yes. the bug. I wanted to be an actor. I thought, this is what I want to do. But very quickly, by the time I was 12 or 13, I knew I wanted to be a writer. Interesting, Noel Coward was 70 in 1971. Lots of people weren't even... He was one of the most important popular mm. artists of the 20th century, but already forgotten. I mean, even Elvis is fading. It's extraordinary how, how quickly cultural icons fade. I mean, God knows even the Beatles will fade in the end. Um, and, but Coward then, the BBC did like a whole week of celebrations. And although I didn't know any of his work, I just loved his life. I thought, could to write witty things and say witty things and go to opening nights and... I just thought, I want to be a writer, I want to be a comedy writer and that, so, and I kept writing and I wrote plays and I, and I, as I put them on, as, I was Mickey Roney, come on everyone, let's do a show right here, here's a space, we're all friends, let's put on a show and, you know, it didn't always make me popular, I was a bit of a slightly over-eager kind of type, um, but, and when, by the time I graduated, I, I wanted to be a playwright. I'd written a play about Mussolini, a comedy about Mussolini, and, uh, and I was getting it rejected from, you know, every theatre in the country, as one would expect. And so that was when I, I realised I had to find a medium for my material because, and the only op option I had was me. Was you. Yeah. And the alternative comedy store was, the alternative comedy scene had just started in London. The idea of comedy as a, as a medium of ideas as opposed to as a, as a simple system of cracking gags um, and uh, I, I you know suddenly there was this 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 quite strange thing going on this cabaret scene in London which was new um, and I I wrote myself a stand-up act I I never I had uh, two days before I appeared that night that Brixton went up in flames um, I had never considered being a stand-up comic I knew I could entertain a bit I'd done a bits and pieces and you know sort of parties and things, but basically I'd never considered doing it. And from that moment on, my course was set, and in fact it defined me forever, because although I'm, I'm a writer, everything I've ever done on stage I've written, there's an element of improvisation, but that's writing too. Mm. You're just writing in front of people. Um, and of course, I'm a novelist, a playwright, and, and many things, it's all based on the written word and a love of language, and yet I'm still stand-up comedian writes 16th novel. Not, <laughs> not regular novelistic does an occasional stand-up set. Um, you know, cliche. Well, no, no cow, the same thing happened to Noel Yeah, cow. no, exactly. You never will. Exactly. In a way it did, because he was, those of you who don't know, he was defined very much by an, an impression he gave very early on in his career of being utterly flippant and utter dilettante, famous, famously photographed in his dressing gown, um, uh, on the phone working with a cocktail, you know, and that was him, and forevermore, this incredibly hard-working, actually very conservative man, um, was defined as a, as a sort of radical dilettante, I mean, uh, uh, and, and, and very camp, which he wasn't in his private life. My, the definition of me was the shouty lefty guy, no question, that was what I was doing, but it wasn't really me, it was a stage thing I was well, finding. Well, I'm curious about that because if it, um, you, you may well have adopted Noel Coward's work ethic and, yeah, and, and the shape of Noel Coward, but, but certainly the voice you adopted and the persona you ended up, mm. that ended up either becoming you or you became yeah. the persona, who was that based on? Who made you laugh? And well, based on me. I mean, my stand-up set is an exaggerated me. I don't 
I did definitely exaggerate it. You do. You're performing. I got myself a glittery suit. I'm, an, I'm a performer. I've got to be the focus. And I was very scared. There was an awful lot of heckling in those days, a lot of aggression. The idea of comedy, as, a, as I say, as a medium for ideas was very new. So people are, well, this isn't funny, you know, he's been going for 25 seconds and, you know, there's no jokes. And, and, and it was quite hard um, to, because the material was delicate. It wasn't gag, 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 and it wasn't really about dealing with hecklers. I could do that. You know, I, you just sort of shouted back and, you know, so there's some witless put down. Um, and yet what I was trying to do was deliver quite delicate routines which were layered and reached a certain moral or political or social or, or simply comedic conclusion. And so I found myself sort of shouting and being a bit aggressive and, and I was comparing the London Comedy Store, which was a gong show, which was a horrible institution. You know, the idea is you shout gong and they have to be chucked the act off. Um, and so it, it wasn't totally me, but it was, it was still all me. I was yeah. trying to get my ideas across, and yes, my accent got a little bit more cockney-mockney, as people do when they're trying to ingratiate themselves with an audience or whatever. But I, I make no apology for that. When anyone performs, they become a slightly exaggerated... I mean, my accent is South London. You know, I, for years, when I was first in the... And people are always trying to undermine principle in Britain, particularly. So apparently my accent was put on. Apparently I'm a posh boy. Well, no, I, I, I went to state schools. I was born in Catford, South East London. I'm the same as John Major, you know, who it was like that sort of thing. And there that's, uh, you know, he was a, a South East London boy. So no, I, I, we, the coward thing was a little bit of a, little bit of a red herring. Um, and of course, he was that fellow as well. There was mm. elements of truth in the dilettante party animal. Uh, certainly not the idea that he was a radical. He was a very conservative person politically. Um, but for me, uh, my stand-up act was really shaped between me and the audience. It wasn't based on any... Because there weren't really any... Stand-up comedians prior to the nine, early, late 70s, early 80s in Britain were gag-tellers. It was very much a working-class art form. Mm. It was almost exclusively male, with one or two extraordinary and, and, and brilliant uh, and very brave exceptions. And it was about telling jokes. Um, and most of the alternative comedians didn't have any jokes, which was you know, as an alternative to being funny, which was the old put-down that you saw. But the idea, as I say, that you would do something on stage as a comedian, find laughs that weren't necessarily a series of punchlines, and move away from the traditional subject matter of alternative comedy, which tended to be sex and race. Not exclusively, but there was an awful lot of racist comedy. It doesn't mean they were all racist comedians. Mm. They were, to quote a much overused phrase, normally in defense of some, some recently uncovered sex molester, these were different times. Uh, and, uh, and, and I don't despise and never despised any, any of those comedians, except the real bastards. There were a few who were genuinely nasty did, characters. Did you like Bernard Manning? Uh, no, I, I think Bernard Manning was a pretty brutal guy. Does anyone um, know who Bernard Manning is? I don't know, would go out obscure yeah. already. Yes, a one person, great. A brilliant comedian. He was an extraordinary skilled joke teller, very, very, could command a room as well as really any, any comedian I've ever seen, a very, very skilled, but his stock in trade was 
was was was very racist and sexist comedy, and and I don't didn't like it. Um, whereas uh, if you look at you know Les Dawson mm -hmm. or Charlie Williams, a black comedian, mm -hmm. well, the only one at that time. Anyway, this is all very detailed <laughs> stuff for you guys. I mean, we could go into it if, well, you, no, if you wish. It's just Ben and I having a conversation. Yeah, I, yeah. I completely forgotten you were here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I I, sh I should ask the um, the the group of your group of cohorts. Mm. Um, was there a conscious decision to is try... Is it a group of cohorts? Well, it's a cohort. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, a group of cohorts would be a sort of archipelago, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah. Moving from one cohort that's to the right. next. Yes. Anyway. I'm, I'm happy to be edited by you, yeah. Ben. That's fine. <laughs> but uh, was there a conscious decision to try and use an all-inclusive language or at least use a language in stand-up that wasn't creating an out-group? I think there was, you know, what was alternative comedy? I think in general it was a rejection, not of comic styles, because everyone in it loved showbiz. We were all besotted with Morecambe and Wise, as we were with Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. I mean, nobody was had this snob idea that there's a certain middle-class good comedy and there's a certain working-class bad comedy. We, we loved the goons, all of whom were ex-servicemen, working men. We loved the crazy gang. But it was the subject matter. It was... Uh, these were... Great days, actually. The 80s made a lot of advances which were then squandered in the 90s. Oh, we've done that. We've got rid of the C word. We don't have sexist advites anymore, so now we can all be sexist again. And it's, but we'll, we'll cloak it in a postmodern irony, which means we've kind of got our cake and eat it, which was very much the stand-up of the 90s. But the 80s, I think there was a general feeling of rejecting a bullying subject matter, to find new subjects to be funny about that, that weren't bullying of, of, of specific groups, minority, you can't call women a minority, but certainly minorities and women. Um, I don't think many comedians were as political or as self-centering as I was. I mean, the cohort, there were a lot of people who were basically clowning. It wasn't comedy of ideas. Rick and Aid, my dearest friends, were, were basically, they could have walked into the crazy gang or... Their biggest influence was uh, Laurel and Hardy. They weren't in any sense political, except again, they didn't do material which was, or at least which they considered offensive. I was being more proactive than that. I was interested in exploring language and, and actually going to the problem of sexis sexism in comedy particularly, and censoring my own language. And that, that was when I was first accused of being politically correct, and that's 35 years ago, the phrase first emerged. And I was always very careful never to presume. I, right from the start, I didn't presume that the audience was a homogenous group of, of heterosexuals of mm -hmm. whom the men were basically setting the agenda. I'm not saying this to say, oh, look at me how great I was. But it's true. I would say, you know, the straight people in the audience will know what I'm talking about because I was not presuming the audience yeah. were. But that and makes sure that's a more honest approach to being a stand-up because your job as a stand-up presumably is to muster that audience into into the same... To make a community pen. of comedy. Yes. And our shared humanity. It's a lovely, <laughs> lovely thing. And it, it was indeed a lovely thing. Um, and Aid sometimes... I remember Aid saying to me, oh, for God's sake, why do you always say, oh, the straight people in the audience? Say, we know you're straight. We know not everyone's straight. Do you he was basically saying, you're PC gone mad, mate. Right. And this was 35 years ago. And that's because Aid thought it was being overly pious. And I said, no, I'm, what I'm working on is the power of language. That's not what you do. Um... But I think it's important and interesting and it adds the comedy when I'm self-censoring and explaining my linguistic choices. I mean, you know, I can remember times when gears changed in my mind. The, the, the not presuming the audience's sexuality. I had an experience in 1977, within a week of going to university, I saw a pretty girl in a student union bar and I, I don't think I'd have had the guts to try and pull her. I, think I was, you know, like most men, I was just petrified of rejection. Um, but... 
I, you know, I was kind of thinking of sidling over and saying, what are you studying? And, you know, and, you know, you in the walking sock. It's, it's a good, good method. Yeah, though. exactly. And, um, and anyway, she turned around, she had a badge, a big badge, and it said, how dare you presume I'm heterosexual? <laughs> and that was, the, that was 1977. I thought that was an amazing, it was an epiphany for me, because mm. although, of course, I was totally aware, you know, I was a, you know, well brought up in a fairly lefty household, but nonetheless, I realised, even though I know lots of people are gay, I actually was presuming she was heterosexual. And I think Abe would have said, well, I think that's a very pious badge, and for God's sake, get over yourself. But I found it very, I don't want to flag off Abe, he's a very good bloke, but... I found it immensely illuminating. I thought, gosh, that is interesting. I really had presumed. And um, when we wrote another, ex another example of me sort of working through as I did my work, learning as I went along, in the first episode of The Young Ones, Rick Vick used a school schoolyard insult, which I had used in schoolyards and which I then put into The Young Ones, which was him going, oh, what are you, Vivian? A spasmo. And we got some letters from mothers and fathers right. of kids with cerebral palsy. And, you know, the whole thing came down on me with a great horrendous sledgehammer of, oh, my God, what an awful thing. I totally get it. That's, you know, the letter said, you know, imagine if you're going to school tomorrow and the most hip, popular show in the country that mm. every kid, literally every kid in the country knows off by heart. That's how big the young ones was. You know, um, and if you're a kid with a disability or whatever, and of course, I mean, I should have known, but I didn't. Well, I did, but I hadn't really thought of that word. Mm. I ended up making that one little epiphany the centre of my second novel because I really thought about that and about the power of language to change society, and that's why I've always been self-censored. And, and it's still uh, a topic. It's, it's mm. one of many that appears in your, in your novel now, Political Correctness, and mm. as well as the Me Too movement and social media. Yeah. And yeah, political correctness, I've always said, was a myth. I've always said, look, it's just good manners inflated by a right-wing agenda trying to produce change. You know, nobody ever said you can't say bar bar black shit. That's a myth. That's the sort of urban myth that, that, that basically shock jocks say you can't say anything anymore. And normally what they really mean is you can't give an overlong and creepy hug to a junior employee anymore. Yeah. <laughs> what was wrong with that? Um, but I do think, actually, maybe I'm just getting old and maybe older people eventually do become slightly more reactionary. But I do think there is a case, I think no platforming is problematic. I've always said there is no such thing as PC. It's just good people trying to do right by their community and by their shared humanity. I think most of what's going on at the moment is, is quite wonderful. The gears are changing, it's painful, but it's interesting and it's good. But I don't, I'm not sure at all about the idea of no platforming. I would, own, I would only no platform a Nazi. I wouldn't no platform somebody for being phobic. I wouldn't, I wouldn't no platform a homophobe, unless they went to the point of inciting violence. Yeah. I, would, I would heckle them potentially, I would certainly engage them, but I think to no platform them potentially does more harm than good, I think. So this is a very complicated issue, but you know, life is complicated, although you wouldn't know it on the current election. Oh, well, how are we going to talk about climate science? He's not going to let you have a ute at the weekend. <laughs> Where will you put your bike and your, captain, your camping crew? Honestly, what a... No, that's very helpful. It's very helpful to have it, to have it boiled down to those very simple things. Yes, then. exactly. Climate science and the, uh, the encroaching e uh, ecological Armageddon, which is threatening an extinction event 
of us mm. is down to you can't even go camping in your ute with your kids anymore. Well, <laughs> can we have a little bit of a more serious debate? No, apparently not. Anyway. Anyway. Let us... Uh, now, you, you're, uh, you also deal with Brexit, which I guess you could, uh, you, we could talk for hours about Brexit. Well, it's, it's very interesting. Are you going to go back? Are you going to go back home? Oh, gosh, uh, I'm there all the time. I mean, most of my work's in, in Britain, because despite considerable effort, I never seem to be able to get much of a job in Oz, and when I do, I get shot on from a great height. So I tend to work, <laughs> I tend to work mainly in Britain, where they shit on me, but they still give me the work. Um, well, I was wondering so, about that, because it's been, it's been about four years since since your last novel. Yeah. I've uh, been, so I wonder what you were doing. You're I've up, been immersed in Crow, Shakespeare. Yeah, look, yeah. I, 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 we, we're a, we're a two-country family with a horrendous carbon footprint, and it's, it's, an, it's a difficult thing. Life is complicated. Didn't expect to fall in love with an Australian, didn't expect to become an Australian, didn't expect to have a half-life as a two-country family. It's not easy, it's inconvenient, but we're very happy together, so obviously we've got to keep on going. Um, you know, I'm, well, I'm, they didn't I'm turn up. not going to do... Yeah, no, no, they're here. They're here in the end. I've spotted them. Trouble in paradise. Uh, they didn't want to sit at the bloody front, did they? Oh, that would have been fun. Oh, but, yeah. Um, so, yeah, but I'm not going to divorce her. I, will, I like the air miles too much, so, you know, you know I'm, I'm platinum standard, you know, and that's air miles. Um, but I work mainly in Britain, and over the last... A uh, few years I've been immersed in the past. My last two novels have been historic novels, one a very personal one about uh, Weimar Berlin, really a portrait of my father's um, childhood uh, mm -hmm. in a mixed uh, family which was both Jewish and because by dint of adoption also non-Jewish. And then, of course, what happened with the Nazis. So that was a very interesting novel to write. And then another historical novel. And then I've been working on Shakespeare. I've done a sitcom, sort of adderish sitcom called Upstart Crow. The BBC, well, I'm glad yeah, you yeah. love it. Yeah, I love sure. it. I, I think it's the best thing I've ever yeah. written. But I like the way that um, one of the many things I like about Upstart Crow is, because you know in your third series. Yeah, we're the third series. There's is been the best. a progression with the way David Mitchell performs that role. And maybe even the way you write that role for David that I would say by the second series, it's, very, it's a, not a very different character, but it's quite a nice amalgam between your two styles, between David's style of delivery and your style of writing. Well, it was certainly no coincidence. I wrote up, so for those of you who don't know, the ABC buried it slightly, but that's all right. The, you know, multi-platform world, nothing is... You found it, thank you. Nothing <laughs> is easy to find anymore. Um, but David Mitchell, the brilliant... British uh, comic muse, uh, writer, artist, uh, and uh, you know, when you get to my age, you don't expect to make really good new friends. You sort of do most of that when you're at university and in your 20s, and, and working with David and forming a very close friendship with David has been one of the great treats of my recent, quite mature career. But I wrote it with him in mind, not for him, I wrote it with his voice. He's got this slightly cynical sort of lower middle class aspirational <laughs> genius for very clever Englishman, always feeling that slight, people don't quite realise how clever he is. It's sort of very much an English trope, Captain Mannering, uh, Basil, uh, Basil Fawlty, always wanting to be considered better. Anyway, I wrote it with his voice in mind, but of course the character is about 25 mm. in uh, 1595. Um, but in the end, I mean, he's quite cherubic. He's got rather yeah. a sort of sweet face. And in the end, having tried to find a young person, a young David Mitchell, I realised we needed the real David Mitchell. Um, and from the start, I've been writing towards his style of delivery. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, it's incredibly hard work writing that series. I mean, Dolly Parton famously once said it, it, takes, a lot of, uh, uh, it takes a whole lot of money to make a woman look this cheap. And... <laughs> 
I, I think it, it, you'll know, it takes an awful lot of effort to make comedy look effortless and easy. Mm. So that I have to work very, very hard so critics can say, well, the comedy was rather obvious. You know, it takes a real effort to make comedy look easy. Anyone can make comedy look difficult. Ask Harold Pinter, yeah, because he's really funny. <laughs> Making it look easy is hard, which is why Alan Aitborn should have been poet laureate, uh, should have got the Nobel Prize for Literature and not Pinter. But don't let me get started on Pinter because it's a personal <laughs> bete noir of mine. Anyway. Um, I guess one of the things yeah. that makes it, uh, might make it easy to, to say, or make, it, make people say it's easy to do, or it's, uh, uh, is the fact that you've got a live audience and you don't see that much these days. Uh, yeah, studio comedies. Um, were all, comedies used to be made in the studio with a live audience, and people always used to say, "Oh, the, com the it's laughter, the canned laughter." It's not canned. It's it's recorded, and it's recorded in a community event. It's very interesting. I, look, sorry, I'm gonna. I, I did a. I was very privileged to give the Ronnie Barker Memorial Lecture on comedy at the BBC about two years ago, and I talked about the difference between studio-based sitcoms like Dad's Army, like Blackadder, like The Young Ones, like Upstart Crow, like Mother and Son, which have a laughter which have recorded live, theatrically, on the night. A very difficult thing to do. Six cameras weaving between the actors, people trying to hit their props, etc. You only do it twice, mm. you know, you run it twice, and you record the laughter, etc. And then a modern sitcom, which is actually a much older form, is like a Chaplin Silent yeah. or, a, or Laurel and Hardy, in which you basically use a single camera and you film a little half-hour comedy. Often these days in the mockumentary form, which is very cheap and also kind of fun. Um, but there's a snobbery. It's almost as if, you know, post-office comedy is proper and pre-office, and office was brilliant. I'm not, I think it was a game-changing work of true comic greatness. But somehow, studio comedy is a bit naff, a bit mm. cheesy, a bit 1950s. I think it's terribly sad because, actually, it's comedy of the community. I think it's no surprise that... Studio comedies kind of went out of fashion the same sort of time society and community did, round about the mid-80s, when, when, you know, Thatcher and Reagan suddenly, what we used to think was the focus of society, which was the community, was chucked out, and suddenly it's the individual. We're all looking for geniuses. We're looking for hard men to lead us. We're looking for, for brilliant dot-com billionaires to do this, that, and the other. The idea that the community can come together and create something wonderful, which is the only way anything wonderful is ever created. The NHS is a creation of the community. Uh, the public transport system in Melbourne is the creation of the community. You know, it takes, a hedge, it takes an individual to organise a hedge fund but it takes a village to lay a tram network. Mm. And my, my belief is that actually um, studio sitcom kind of represents a, the reason people love them and they feel warm with them is because actually they're entering into a group experience. And it is warm, which some people, particularly in Britain, think that must make it cheesy, which must make it bad. Mm. Whereas the single camera sitcom, many of which are great and I watch and love, is more distancing. It's more critical. It's colder. It's often, as I say, it's done as a documentary mm. or a mockumentary. Just an interesting thing. I've always loved to work in a studio because I love the community of the performers and the technicians. Six cameras weaving around, feeding. It's being mixed live. The boom mics are trying to catch the laughter. Trying to catch. It's a real. It's an incredibly yeah. expressive group effort. But the art's more invisible. The art's invisible, yeah, totally, because you, you cloak it and make it look easy and the audience are laughing and it all seems just like a silly night, like an episode of Dad's Army. Nobody would really, these days they do, but at the time nobody would have said that Dad's Army was great art. I think it's great art and, 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 and a piece of 
great human observation. And just because something looks silly, what we see in the darkness of Captain Mannering's frustrations, his, his battles with the British class system, his constant feeling that he's not being considered as w for what he's worth, whilst, I mean, what a moment of genius when Croft and Perry, those of you who know Dad's Army, Dad's, uh, the Captain Mannering, the bank manager, the man ostensibly with all the authority, is a middle-class grammar school boy. His chief clerk and sergeant in the Home Guard is an upper-class private school boy. Mm. And it was a moment of genius because actually the private school boy has all the moral authority and the effortless, self-effacing confidence that that brings. And Mannering is, is basically crushed by this ease of confidence, which he will never have because he wasn't born to it. And I think that continues to affect Britain to this day. Um, it affects me, you know, if I, I haven't had much success in America, but occasionally I've been over there and it, you do an interview and they say, so, 16 novels, that's amazing. It's 16 novels, I've got, that's fantastic, you must love to work in Britain. And so you've turned out another novel, have you? You ever think people might get tired of it? And, uh, and Stevens used to say this to me, because, you know, he said, "You've got a the reason you always get this shit is because you're you, you're so eager. You see, you get asked what's your new book like. That's oh, the best thing I've ever written. I love it. You're going to love it. Do read it." He said, "No, no, no. You've got to say, oh, it's awful. Please avoid it. I hate it. <laughs> oh, it's rubbish. Oh, well, look, I've thrown it. If you want to read it, do. But please don't blame me if you hate it." Now that's the English way, and I just can't do it. Yeah. You know, maybe it's my half Jewish background. I don't know, but I'm not going to hide the fact that I like to please, that I work hard, and I want it to work. So, is this, what's this one like? It's brilliant. It's <laughs> it's absolutely fantastic. You know, you were saying uh, you were saying earlier that uh, that uh, you you haven't written a memoir yet, but I'm just a bit curious about your your character, Michael Matlock, your protagonist. Mm. Uh, if I can quote you to you, yeah, because it's bloody good. I okay. mean, any. This is, this is going to be good, even okay. a snippet. <laughs> he knew he was out of his depth in an age of outrage. Quite an irony, considering that as a proud schoolboy punk rocker, he'd been the outrage. Hmm. Is he you? There's a, there's a lot of me in here. I've, all, I've written an awful lot of characters over the years, and there's a little bit of me in all of them, even the, even the not nice ones, because, of course, you draw from within. You only have your own your own feelings and your own, uh, your own soul to express yourself with. But Matlock, yes, of course, he's a dad man, he's middle-aged, he's no longer cool. You know, even Elvis would be uncool to Lisa Marie. It's a funny thing, you don't get to be cool to your kids. And it's a good lesson in life. And of course, everyone knows dad jokes are the worst jokes. So if you're a comedian and a dad, you're in trouble, particularly, uh, uh, you know, with the next generation. And Matlock is this, this, this kind of, this guy who's always thought he was, you know, pretty liberated and very much into an inclusive society on the side of the angels. But he's definitely feeling overtaken. Things are moving very, very quickly. He doesn't understand these new identities that he's investigating because this murder is taking place. He's discovering that it's, it seems to be the murders are identity-based and they're identities he had no idea. Well, he was only half aware existed and he's having to navigate a whole new language and a whole new national landscape because whilst Britain and Australia and America go through paroxysms of nationalistic fervour. Whilst Trump builds a wall around the US, whilst Scotland wants to leave England and while England wants to leave Europe, and we're all talking in terms of geographical communities, that's not what people really care about anymore. What they care about is, is their community 
mm. based on their own self, their sexuality, their race, as I, as I said earlier. So, yeah, he's... And I find that confusing. I'm catching up to speed. There is something in me. I think I'm a bit cooler than him, but <laughs> I don't mean cooler in that I'm like, you know, I, you know I'm cooler, well, the, the book opens, I'm just more informed. The book opens and he's apologising. Yeah. Um, have you... Have you had to do that? Have you uh, no, been pressed I, to apologise for I anything I wouldn't have said? made the mistake he made. I'm, I was aware of the power of language in terms of, of, of gender relations because I've always been thinking about it. Matlock was a cop. He's been solving crimes. I've been thinking about the power of language since I first started talking. I know, and, it, and so I would not... He makes the mistake that a Melbourne police officer made. Um, a couple of years ago when he appeared to be victim-blaming when there was a truly dreadful murder of which we all know there are a surfeit and in what he thought was a well-intentioned effort to warn women about a new and present danger he appeared to be victim-blaming and I thought he got a pretty rough trot I personally thought it was a feeding frenzy on him and the premier came out and condemned him etc it, was a mu it would have been so much better to take the opportunity to talk about it properly and say, let's see why this was the wrong thing to say. Eventually that occurred. Mm. It did what his, his brief moment of, 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 of being, you know, lost in a blizzard of hashtags actually did result in a very, very good furthering of a conversation about the nature of gender-based violence. So all in all, it was a good thing, but he suffered for it and I didn't think, I don't think it's a necessarily a copper's job to understand absolutely uh, the subtleties of what we might all consider the more important aspects of gender violence, which is that obviously rape is at its core a male problem on the whole, not exclusively, but on the whole. But for a police officer, it's also a problem of, it's a women's problem because it's his job to, to protect and to catch. So it's complicated. Life's complicated. Yes, ScoMo, I will never use that horrendously <laughs> matey, you don't like that? You no, don't, I, I think it's... I think it's quite endearing. Who's with me? Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the naked hypocrisy of the man. Anyway, I, uh, <laughs> I don't... Um, it's interesting. We hear all about this religion. He's a very religious man of faith. I, I have every respect for people of faith. I'm an atheist myself, although I bow to no one in my appreciation. <laughs> yeah. I bow to no one in my appreciation of the mysteries of the universe, and I'll even happy to call them God. I mean, we don't understand them. What I won't do is personify them or presume the arrogance to know that deity's opinions on gay marriage or the future of the election. And I do not think that one has... Having faith gives you some kind of moral high ground. We live in a country where literally say, well, as a man of faith. No, well, you could say as a man who believes in superstitions. You know, I'm, I don't think that gives you any extra kudos at all. And as... Uh, for an evangelical person of faith, as Scott Morrison is, of the opening chapters of the Bible say that the earth was given to man to use in any way he wished, that it was there to serve him. The plants, the trees, the animals were there for the service of man. And that is terrifying because that's exactly what Tony... Abbott and Scott Morrison, who are both Christians, believe, and that's why they deny climate science, because it's our earth, we'll fuck it up if we want, it's in the Bible, you know, <laughs> we have literally got divine permission to fuck this earth completely and absolutely, and it's in Genesis chapter one, on the seventh day, or the sixth day, there you are, it's yours, fuck it up if you will, and that's the truth, that's yeah. what it says, so I don't think that faith is a... Uh, is a very kind and caring one. Anyway. We're in a church, Ben. I know. 
I have many Christian, many Christian friends, and I think not all Christians are of that type, mm. but they are. Mm. Anyway. <laughs> all right. Can I, uh, can I ask about the... Uh, the because the book deals with many things. Um, uh, the Me Too movement, it certainly deals with. Um, well, I, I would say deals with it. I mean, it well, touches on it. Deals well, with it suggests I've kind of <laughs> you know, sorted that one out. Well, yeah. well In whining women, I sorted them out, yeah. <laughs> your, your, char your characters offer a variety of perspectives on I do. a bunch of issues. And I wondered whether... I was reading, I'm reading the diaries of uh, Alan Bennett at the moment. Oh, he, yes. And he talks, about, he talks about... He says the playwright, and I think this might apply to novel writing too, shouldn't, shouldn't be... Um, uh, getting up on a soapbox and just addressing the audience, um, that it's far more interesting to use characters mm. to put, with all seriousness and with a certain amount of gravitas, a particular point of view and then have them sorted out. Yeah. Either they might not reach a conclusion, but it's interesting to hear those views being aired. Yeah. Um, I, I would agree with you, that. You certainly do that in your book on a, mm. on a number of topics, but I'm, what I'm wondering is how do you know that a particular topic or the way in which you wish to treat that topic is a book and not say a film or not say a, a television series because it's what i'm writing a view you know i art is an improvisation as far as i'm concerned you 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 know i i often misquote ian e. forster but it's a brilliant observation how can i tell you what i think until i've heard what i have to say mm. you find your art by doing it. I don't think the painter has any idea what the picture... They have a small idea what the picture will look like, but as the canvas hits the paint, it develops. It, it takes on a life of its own. And I think a, a novel or a stand-up routine does that, and it finds itself. Woody Allen, uh, who I still personally feel I'm quite allowed to quote, um, uh, said brilliantly, as an artist, I'm talking about Woody Allen, the artist, not the clearly flawed and conflicted man, uh, he said, when I listen to, when I write a joke, I'm hearing it for the first time. And I think he speaks, not just for all comedians, but for anyone who's ever created anything, be it a doodle on a page, be it a, be it a, a little humming thing you hum to yourself, it's entirely new. Sometimes it can happen on stage and that's a wonderful, mm. wonderful moment, that's improv, obviously. But everything is an improv. And as the novel grows, and you start, it's an idea, it feels like a book, it, it feels like a book. It's not a polemic. I'm not going to write a book that lays its, I'm pro this and I'm against that. Of course it's got to be nuanced. It'll be a really boring book. Mm. Even a, a properly polemical artist like George Bernard Shaw, who is, I think he's much underrated because people say he just banged on with his agenda. But actually he was always nuanced. With Major Barbara, you know, a piece about, about charity, it was nuanced with the Heartbreak House, you know, about prostitutes. Yeah, so... There's principle in that book. Mm -hmm. On the whole, I hope it will be considered on the side of the angels. It's not a left-wing book, and it's not a, a, a book that's a guide to a more inclusive society, but that's obviously where I'm mm -hmm. coming from. But that doesn't mean I can't offer a sympathetic view of a confused person trying to deal... Of a, 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 we all know that Jermaine Greer and Ma Martina Lavratfilova, both massively respected voices of the left. I mean, Martina, an LGL, LGBT heroine for 20 years. Marti uh, um, uh, Jermaine Greer, probably the most celebrated feminist, certainly of the second wave and, and in my lifetime. Both of whom who have come into conflict with fourth wave feminists, young women who are entirely clear on their attitude to trans and more sure about it than previous generations of feminism. I think both those points of views must 
be properly represented and must be explored. It's no good to, to, to accuse people of phobia when clearly they're exploring complicated ideas. This is all new. It's not all new. Of course, it's not all new. Mm. But its prominence is new. And the detail with which we're looking into it is new. Oh, and the reaction to it is new. I would say that there's a lot of people who maintain there's an overcorrection going on. I, on, I would think it depends where you sit. Sides. And I, I, yeah. Look, I've got to be honest. I'm going back on a road this year, and I never thought... The, ch the pace of change is startling, and in many ways it's utterly inspiring. The leader of the Scottish Conservative Party, traditionally the most reactionary, the most Abbott-esque wing of the British Conservative Party, the leader, it's no more, uh, it's no better fiscally, it's just as brutal in its elevation of the rich and its oppression of the poor, but its leader is a lesbian, a married lesbian, who she, the two women have children. I, that is incredible. The Scottish Tory party would have burnt at the stake lesbians 25 years ago. It's extraordinary the pace of change. And how weird that, that capital, that money, that conservatives, conservatism is easy. It will forget, thank goodness, all its old reactionary social norms. Suddenly it's, it's embracing the rainbow. That's all great. Mm. But the one thing it won't change is its attitude to money. They'll literally do anything. They don't care. They're, you know, they're, they're, it's interesting that the one bit where there's been no social progression, in fact, we've gone backwards and backwards and backwards, is on tax and welfare and trade union rights and welfare rights. Suddenly, whilst it's so weird, part, part of our society has blossomed into acceptance of difference and gender and sexuality, and it's, it's beautiful and utterly unexpected. I never thought I would see that. If anyone had said that to me 20 years ago, the leader of the Scottish Tories would be a married lesbian. Um, or that a second-generation cis woman would find herself at war with fourth-generation feminist cis women in defence of trans women. This is, this is extraordinary social advance. And yet, fiscally and, and in terms of, of, of our jobs and services, and the quality of our environment and the quality of our children's education, we keep losing ground. I don't know what the answer to that is, but perhaps those of us who are fortunate enough to be part of this rainbow generation need to also say, whilst we're considering our own identities, we need to come together as a community and say what we really have is a shared humanity, and there's a small group who are in the process of depriving us of that humanity for their own fiscal empowerment, for money. Money is the only thing that didn't get liberated by the rainbow generation. Witness all the reactionary gay, you know, gay men. There's a lot, you know, one of the most fam famous reactionaries is a, is a gay man. A I think he might even be married. What's his name? Milos Papadopoulos or whatever his name yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, anyway. So, that's interesting, isn't it? I haven't got an answer, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> well, no, you, you know, it's not one so, of the... Not sorting anything out here, one, just one having the, a whinge. Well, I'm a pump. One of the many things covered in Ben's book, plus jokes, ladies and gentlemen. Lots of jokes. <laughs> um, it's a comedy. It really is a comedy. It's like... Yeah, well, it, loud, and, 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 very, and very funny. And, there, and if you haven't got a copy yet, I'm sure there are some uh, up the back there. Should we take some questions? Have we got time yeah. to take some questions? Yes. Anybody Sorry, I've been banging on. No, Forgive no, I, I've been an inadequate interviewer as usual. No. Silly thing. Just a reminder, if possible, just to keep your questions concise as we're trying to get a few in before we finish up here. So yeah, maybe, maybe keep the answers concise. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he's saying. <laughs> I know, I can tell your coded criticism. Yeah. Uh, ben. Amazing. Uh, or should I call you Ben L now if you want to shorten it? No, um, whatever you want to call so me. So I grew up in UK in the Thatcherite uh, early 80s. Yeah. You were a beacon 
of taking down Thatcher. <laughs> I don't think I succeeded. <laughs> no, well, in words you did. Yeah. You're a beacon for all of us that saw the injustice, the minor strikes, etc. Mm. I've always wondered why you didn't do more to try and fight for justice. So all your books have these messages around community, around justice. I call them themes. I didn't do more because I'm not a politician. I could have chosen to go that way, and who knows, might have been successful, might not have been, but I, my love is entertainment, my love is art, and although I believe I've got a duty to do my best for my community, be it local or global, I also have a duty and a right to live my life the way I want, and I'm, I'm an artist. I'm, my, I love history, and I, my, you know, I'm very interested. I have here, at my, I think the two greatest British Prime Ministers, by weird coincidence, were consecutive. The greatest war leader we ever had who was instrumental in saving the war was Churchill, a reactionary Tory, but damn, damn, damn useful when we needed him. And the greatest, the greatest peace leader was Attlee, who brought the National Health Service into being, an equally great Prime Minister. But I, I don't want to be those people. I'll certainly support them at election time. Attlee, I'll say my bit. And I've been burdened with this political thing because I, I can't shut up. But, <laughs> but I'm an artist, so that's why I, you know, when I write, I'm, I'm writing because I want to express myself comedically and I want to express heartfelt emotions and interesting ideas and I'm not there to give a message, I'm there to provoke the imagination of anybody who does me the privilege of listening or reading. Aren't they privatising national health? Isn't that, uh, isn't I that on, say imaginations. on that table? Well, I mean, uh, the slow, steady privatisation of the... I mean, obviously, the Thatcher project is still incomplete, but the ro <laughs> they've, they've ruined the railways, they've ruined the universities, they've ruined education, and they're, they're in the process of ruining the National Health Service. Um, Upstart Crow is one of my favourite TV shows at this point in time. Why did you decide to write it? Well, do you know what? It was just the loveliest thing. I never thought I'd get another gig on the BBC. Um, you know, you have your time. As a comedian, I was finished by, really, by the early noughties. I, I had a show on... I had the, the Ben Elton show in 1998, 8 million viewers on BBC Two. I tried to get a gig on the TV in 2003, once the babies had grown up a bit, and I couldn't get it. I said, we don't want you anymore, which is fine. You have your time. Morecambe and Wise were only at the top for seven or eight years. You can't complain. The world doesn't know you're living, and there's a lot of youngsters who want those budgets. I'd had a great run as a comedian, but I've never been able to get back on the telly, and that's okay. But as a, as a writer, I kept working. And getting sitcoms, The Thin Blue Line was a big hit, not so much with Bless, but then I had a show that really didn't work, although I loved it, uh, called The Right Way. And I really thought, I'm done, I'm toast. The, 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 I'll never get another sitcom. The greatest British comic form, the studio sitcom, I'll never get another. But just a great good fortune, the BBC thought there's one thing he can still do. We love that uh, historical stuff. So Shakespeare's 400 was coming up, and the head of comedy at the BBC amazingly gave me another shot. He said, I'm not giving you a commission, but I'm giving you a challenge. It's one name, William Shakespeare. And uh, uncommissioned and, and uh, you know, on, a sp on spec, I started working and, and through a process of development came up with Upstart Crow. And to my amazement, in my late 50s, in the fourth de consecutive decade of writing sitcoms for the BBC, I had another one and I had a hit. So it's one of the great things of my life that I had a... Because to, to any English comic, British comic writer, a hit sitcom on the BBC is still the holy grail, even mm. though they're nothing like as significant as they once were. But they're still, it's still the business. So, be a, be a so I wrote it because I was, I was offered a chance and I took it. 
Will there be a fourth series? No, because the BBC uh, have decided not to commission, which is, again, there comes a time. They have a limited budget. Of course, they know there's a huge audience for it, and it's much loved. But, you know, they've got a rapidly shrinking budget. They have a huge program of diversity, which is proper. They have to bring in, they have to bring in more, uh, you know, it's, it's hard, I guess, you know. Lots, some, there'll be less white men getting gigs, and the white men that don't get the gigs have every right to be as sad about it as anyone who doesn't get a gig. But there is a, gears are changing, and, and certainly for older people who've had a lot of good fortune, I per, even though I was deeply disappointed, as were the audience and as was the cast, etc., um, I understand. That's a large comedy budget, and it needs to go to someone younger. And I won't say of what type. I will merely say younger, and that's, that's, uh, that's great. Because I've got opportunities, and I think I might do it on stage, which would be fun. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, <laughs> well, there's one night already sold out. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Um, actually, uh, do we have another, another question? I was going to say, maybe take a couple more from the back. Couple, come on. I, I should also mention Friday Night Live, which is a, a program you hosted many years ago. Yeah, and became a and big you, gig. Yeah. And you came over to Australia and found the... Uh, that it had been... Wendy, had, Wendy Harmer was on my show in England, a live stand-up comedy show, and I think quite rightly and brilliantly, she said, God, what Australia needs is this, a live cabaret stand-up you know, with lots of nonsense and silliness and going on, and uh, that was the big gig, which was a carbon copy of what we were doing in Britain. And I say that without any rancour at all. Uh, you know, we weren't the first people to do a live cabaret show either. I mean, they did kind of nick the no, inflatable set. I know, I remember, but... you, I remember you making a gag <laughs> yeah. about it. So yeah, just... I was on it, yeah. yeah. I was on Wendy this morning on ABC Sydney. Anyway, yes, we should... Um, ben, you talked about uh, your contribution to the alternative comedy movement in the 80s. Who's doing interesting and challenging comedy now and which, what direction are they pushing it in that you're, that's kind of caught your eye? I don't look at a lot of comedy. It's a bit of a bus person's holiday for me. And also, since I'm going back on the road, and I've always known I'd go back on the road, my wife's very encouraging. She says, you're good at it and you should go and do stand-up again. I, basically, I think she probably wants me out of the house. Um, <laughs> But, um, so I never, I never really watch stand-up because I know that they'll be covering similar ground to me, uh, differently, but I don't really want them in my head. I don't want their take on, be it Starbucks or me too, whatever, be it a silly thing or a significant thing. Um, uh, so I don't tend to look, I'm very aware, I'm aware of, of changing mores, I'm aware of what Hannah Gadsby did, and, and, but I, I don't really follow it too much. I'm not going to look at the new Ricky special or whatever. I mean, it's not like I'm, oh, I mustn't look, but I, I'd, I'd rather watch drama, I'd rather read. I don't look at a lot of comedy, um, but I love it when it's, when it's great. And I'm just trying to think, what did I last love? God, so I always get stumped when I think of this. Uh, you know, basically anything McAuliffe does is what I'm, <laughs> you know, God what bless I'm you. looking at. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I think we've got time for one more question. One more question. One more? Yep. Oh, here we go. Ben's, Ben's hey. got to eat. No, it's good, but yeah. Find his family. Oh, I've got well, a question for you, McAuliffe. Uh, yeah. You know, um, TV's in a pretty bad way. Why don't you make Full Frontal again or something like it? Why don't I make what, mate? Sorry? No, not no, it's you. for me. You want oh, some sorry, it's a question on. for me, apparently. <laughs> good question. <laughs> it's a good question. We should. Um, ben, we might wrap it up. Yeah, we'll get one more question. Or are we done? One more, uh, one more. From one anywhere? more? Anywhere? No? No, no. All right. Anything oh, Sean does, I approve of, mate. Well, I thank, agree. Last. He is bloody brilliant. So, yes, uh, for thank. those people who aren't here tonight, um, will your book be available on Audible so we don't have to bother reading it? Audio. <laughs> well, actually, um, I, I, for the first time ever, I've done my own audio book. So, yeah, I've actually, I sat in a boot, I did a Stephen. 
I sat in a booth for you've three done this, days. You've done this one. Yeah. Yep. And I read uh, and I read it. So you can you can literally have me in your head, literally. <laughs> but I, I would say that the greatest privilege, I, I think, being a novelist, is the greatest in comic art. So it's very easy to watch a TV show. It's kind of pretty easy to listen to a podcast or whatever. But to to to, to read or indeed listen to an entire novel, to share your imagination one on one. One individual and another individual. It's an extraordinary intimate thing. When people say to me, I read your novel, I, I, I kind of want, I don't hug them because for goodness sake, I don't want to be hashtagged and me too. But I want to hug them because what they're saying is you and I, you, I let you into my head. I let your imagination into my imagination and we, we're both changed by that relationship. And I, I, I think it's an extraordinarily intimate one. You know, and I, 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 it, the privilege of anybody reading your book is, well, it's, it's extraordinary. It's a piece of their life which they've shared with you and vice versa. And all I can say is that any time anybody does that, they know I did my best. And if they go, I couldn't get more than halfway through, well, that's okay, but it was the best shot I had. And this is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks again, everyone, for coming down, and um, I'm, sure, I'm sure you'd agree with me. We could listen to these two talk for much, much longer, and it would be fantastic. So once again, Sean McAuliffe and Ben Elton, please, a massive round Thank of applause. Thanks, Ben.